And I do want to say this before I dive in, though, uh, about the Barones and about all of what God is doing in our church. Nothing that we have is ours to hold on to. Nothing that we have is ours to keep. And that includes the very greatest blessing he's given us, and that's each and every one of you. Um, We recognize that for all of us, whether it's for three months, three years, 30 years, that this is just going to be a part of your life and that ultimately our desire, our prayer as a staff, as an elder board, as a church, is that this would be a place that you are equipped, you are encouraged, and you are ultimately released to do the ministry that God has called you to do. And I'm so grateful that God has brought us the Barones for this last year. Because not only have they left fingerprints on our church, but I know that our church has left fingerprints on them. And I know that they go back to Houston, radically different people than they were when they came out here. And they are prepared for something. And we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I'm grateful for the gift of this time. And you continue to be part of our family. You are always welcome here. Uh, But just know that. We don't hold on to anything that we have. We want to be very open-handed with it and say, God, it's all yours Bless this world. Do what you want to do. Help yourself to my life to advance your kingdom purposes. That's our prayer, right? All right. Uh, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. It's bittersweet because today we are actually going to wrap up this series that uh, although it's been 15 weeks of wonderful, it seems far too brief and I just kind of wish we could keep hanging out in this letter that was written to a a band of Christians living in and around Ephesus some 2,000 years ago, and yet is so utterly relevant to our life. Because when Paul wrote it, he wrote it into a cultural kind of milieu that was difficult for people who were trying to follow Christ. They were living under the shadow of the temple to a pagan goddess, Artemis. And that temple and that that worship of a pagan deity had such a strong grip on that area that when Paul began to speak the gospel message in that area, when he stood up against a spiritual stronghold, it caused a riot in the city that almost cost him and some other Christ followers their lives. And we also need to keep in mind the the context of what Paul is writing out of. He was, when he was writing, he wasn't in his house, just kind of chilling and, and relaxed. He was under house arrest in Rome, in chains, guarded by a, a Roman soldier, awaiting trial that could ultimately result in his death. Why? Because he had the audacity to preach a gospel that suggested that in Christ, Jew and Gentile were of equal value that they were one people. That was audacious in that time. And so the Jews threw a fit to the point where they tried to get him killed. That is the, the context into which Paul is writing this letter. And he writes to remind Christ's followers who they are in Christ. No, you're not a sinner and far from God. You are now a saint in him. But more than that, You are so utterly loved that God took upon himself by sending his son Jesus into this world to to become sin for us so that you could be the righteousness of God. He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And because of his love, he has adopted you into his family. You are now a child of God in Christ. That's who you are. Because Paul was well aware of the fact that there was a very strong push against and to undermine and to challenge how they viewed themselves and their identity. And so Paul writes to remind them of this, but he doesn't write these things kind of from a a, a rosy glass where he just thinks everything is going to be perfect. Even though, you know, the last couple of weeks as we were talking about how we should operate as sons and daughters of God, loving and mutually submitting to one another and and, and respecting and sacrificing what we want for the benefit of those around us and children honoring and respecting their parents and parents not being embittering their children, but lovingly training them up in the way they should go and slaves, you know, working for their masters as if they were working for Christ and masters loving their slaves. When you look at that whole section, you might go, man, that just seems awfully optimistic. And that's true. It is. It's optimistic in the sense that there is an expectation that that's how we are treating one another. 
but we recognize that that doesn't always play out in reality. And so Paul ends his letter by acknowledging the battle that goes on for our hearts, the battle that goes on for our minds, the battle that goes on for our, um, our worship. And we want to we dive into that this morning. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 10. We're going to take a running start. Last week, we only looked at three verses. We're going to work back through those verses to kind of get a foundation, a springboard into where we're going, but we will not go nearly as deep as we did last week. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, it's online at lighthousecommunity.com. There's also some CDs in the back for those of you who like analog and um, don't know how this worldwide web thing works. You got that too. Okay, so finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Straight out of the gate, Paul acknowledges that our strength is not our own strength. If we have an ability to fight a spiritual enemy, we need a strength that can only come from our connection to God. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. His acknowledgement is that we have an enemy that is devious. He's a schemer. He doesn't come at us with physical weapons, bullets and bayonets. He comes at us with spiritual weapons. He attacks us with lies and half-truths. He takes scripture and twists it just enough that it satisfies his ends rather than the heart of what God was trying to get across. He, he will come at us with temptations, saying, hey, doesn't this look tasty? Doesn't this look like what you yearn for? Wouldn't this satisfy that ache that you feel? And once we give in to that rotten fruit that's been growing along the side of the ditch, he then comes in with accusations. Look at what you've done. What a sinner. What a, what a despicable individual. You better hide that. You better not let anybody around you know what you've done or they would want nothing to do with you. Our enemy tries to undermine our perception of our God and his trustworthiness. He tries to undermine our perception of ourselves as being loved, secure sons and daughters of God. And he tries to undermine our perceptions of one another rather than viewing them as other image bearers who were created in God's image, he, makes, he begins to encourage us to view them as competition and as the enemy so that we will tear them down. And in so doing, we end up doing his work for him. And so in verse 12, Paul reminds us that the people around us are not the enemy. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our enemy is not the people sitting in the pews next to us. It's not your family members. It's not your coworkers. It's not the fellow students. Even if they go to a different school and they're going up against you in sporting contests, they are not your enemy. They're image bearers, even if they don't realize that God loves them and Jesus died for them. Instead, our enemy is the same enemy that has been trying to thwart God's purpose and plan from the very beginning of creation. So how are we supposed to fight against that? How how are we supposed to overcome an enemy we can't even see that fights with weapons that we can't even recognize? Paul recognizes that it's not our job to overcome the enemy. It's not our job to defeat him. That's our father's job. And we know from Scripture that he will accomplish it, that it's just a matter of time. Jesus began it some 2,000 years ago when he was born with human flesh, and he began that long walk to the cross. Because that was God's invasion into enemy-occupied territory to take back what rightfully belonged to him. And the enemy fought tried to to thwart God's purpose and his plans, and he failed. What he thought was his greatest victory, the cross was actually his greatest defeat because in that moment, the power of sin and death, his favorite weapons were defanged and the power was removed from them. But we still live in between D-Day, when God got that spiritual foothold, and V-Day, when God will ultimately declare victory and there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death. And we live in the in-between. So what is our job? It's not our job to overcome the enemy. 
It is our job simply to stand against his schemes and his attacks. And in case we, we don't recognize it, Paul says it four times in this short little passage. Let's just look at verse 13. He says, put on the full armor of God. If you're going to fight a spiritual battle, you need to have spiritual weapons, spiritual armor to protect you. So put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we're not talking about a specific day. We're talking about when evil presents itself, when you are attacked, when you are tempted to give in to something, when you're tempted to let give full reign to your anger and just lash out. When that day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. That's it. To stand against the enemy's attacks. So how do we do this? How do we stand against spiritual attacks? Well, remember, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's guarded by a Roman legionnaire who would have had the full regalia of Roman battle garb on as he's standing there guarding Paul. So Paul, I mean, our God is a God of props. It's very easy when you have something visual in front of you to say, well, let's use that as a metaphor for the spiritual armor we wear that we may not be able to see. And so he, he begins to look at every single piece of the Roman legionnaire's uniform and begins to s- describe a spiritual, or a, to ascribe a spiritual truth to that each piece of armor. Can we, throw the, can we throw a picture of the legionnaire up there for a moment? This is a, a typical Roman legionnaire's outfit. And we're going to go ahead and talk through each piece of it. Hopefully you can see this. Um, the first piece that he says that we should stand with is to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. If you can't see it up here, there's the belt... It goes over the breastplate, it kind of holds everything together, and then it's got these leather tassels that hang down, okay? So it does several things. First off, the belt holds the whole uniform together, because without it, the breastplate, when you're fighting, the, the, the breastplate's going to shift around and it's going to expose your kidneys or, or, or your, your intestines. It, it also holds the scabbard down. So they would put their sword scabbard on and then they would put the belt over it. And so when you're fighting, you don't have something flopping around. It keeps everything together. Secondly, because of those leather tassels hanging down that were studded with metal, that protects some very important regions that you don't want to have to worry too much about during battle. Because otherwise you might shy away from the attack of the enemy. And remember, we have an enemy who loves to take a low blow. Who loves to go at us in areas that we are weak. Let's, not, let's be adults here. But you get it, right? You need to be protected. And... We have an enemy who attacks us with lies. Jesus called him a liar. He said he is a liar and the father of lies. So what better thing to describe this belt as than the truth that God gives us? The truth that speaks truth against the lies of the enemy. That when he begins to whisper things about us, when he begins to whisper things about our father God, when he begins to whisper twisted truths of how we should interpret what somebody said to us, it's the truth of God that begins to speak through. It holds everything together. It keeps the rest of the armor from shifting on us. It protects us from the low blows of the enemy. So God's truth is very, very important to help us to rest in that because it protects us from his attacks. Secondly, You have the breastplate of righteousness. He describes, you you can see here, these soldiers are wearing metal breastplates that go over the shoulders and come down and and, and protect here. Others would wear boiled leather breastplates that were kind of formed to their body. Either way, the purpose of the breastplate was to guard your vital organs. Because what better way to take a soldier out of the fight than to stab them both where they're soft and where it will do the most damage. And the most vital organ of all is our heart. And we have an enemy who is not above going after our heart to try to... If you can get to the heart, you can take the fight out of the soldier. You can take him out of the fight instantly. And so Paul likens the breastplate. He calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Because our righteous standing... And righteousness is simply a big word for our right standing with God. 
Our righteousness protects us against the accusations of the enemy when he begins to say, dude, you're despicable. You, you, you think yourself a child of God? Please. Remember what you did? Remember when you did this? Remember when you snapped at your kid? Child of God wouldn't do that. Remember when you took that second look? Child of God wouldn't do that. Remember when you lied straight to your parents' face? A child of God would not do that. You ought to be disgusted. And everybody around you is disgusted. And, you're, and the, the one that you call Father God, he's disgusted. He wants nothing to do with you. And those attacks, if, are not, if not defended by an understanding of our righteousness, our right standing with the Father, those attacks can take the life out of us. It can absolutely deaden our heart to the point where we just go, I give up, I'm done. I don't even want to try anymore. But I should point out this. This righteousness, this breastplate that we wear to protect our hearts is not a, a righteousness of our own. It's not something we have earned because we all know that, that, that we've all fallen short, woefully short of the righteous standard of our Father God. So if it's our own righteousness that we're dependent upon, either A, it's made of tissue paper, or B, every time we screw up, it's like we take that breastplate off until we do enough good things to be able to somehow in our minds warrant putting it back on. That's not good armor. But thankfully, our righteousness is not of our own doing. Our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. He alone was perfect. He alone is right with God. And in, so, in dying for us, he made his righteousness available to us. Can we put 2 Corinthians 5 up there for a moment? He says this. Paul says this in, in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took all of our mistakes, all of our rebelliousness, all of our sin upon himself so that we in turn could become righteous in God's eyes. We are in right standing, not because we're perfect people, but because he is our Lord and Savior and he is our covering. So we can stand against the attacks of the enemy, the jabs that go after our heart because he has made us righteous. Does this make sense? Good. Next. We go to the feet that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Okay, can we throw a picture of the sandals? These are the kind of footwear that Roman soldiers would wear. And historians suggest that it was the footwear that was one of the greatest tools that helped Roman centurions dominate in the field. Because these, these sandals had hobnails, they're like wooden or metal studs in the bottom of them, very similar to soccer cleats. They would wear these, and so they were able to stand firmly in any kind of ground, whether it be mud, wet grass, ice and snow. They could stand firmly. If they're on a hillside, they're not slipping down. And so when they are under attack, they could stand firmly. And he says, in the same way, the gospel of peace is not just good news that you need to spread. The gospel of peace actually can help you rest in your identity as children of God and rest in the midst of open attack on you. Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he, he uh, was ultimately crucified, he said, listen, guys, peace I give to you, my peace. I, and I don't give as the world gives. I, I kind of give but to take it away. I give you peace so that you can stand without fear, without anxiety. You can stand against the enemy's attacks. That's the kind of peace that we have in Christ. He also said to his disciples, listen, guys, in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have moments where your bodies begin to break down and then the doctors say, yep, it's cancer. You're going to have moments when somebody that you thought you could trust breaks your heart and is unfaithful. You're going to have moments where people you care about, whether it's a parent, a loved one, or even a child, dies. And if our, if our confidence, if our peace is founded upon our circumstances, then that peace will be shaken constantly in this world. So Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. 
but you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. How did he do that? He died on the cross for us so that the brokenness of this world does not get the last word. So that when we remember, I was talking to Betty Hart, and yesterday they had a memorial service for her best friend. So that, so that when we grieve, and we do grieve her passing, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We can find peace in the midst of the sadness of losing somebody tremendously close to us because we know that this is not goodbye. This is simply, I'll see you soon. That when we say goodbye to friends that we have grown to consider family in the Barones, we don't consider this, this is goodbye. We just recognize that this is God saying, now I want to do something powerful through them back in Houston. And so we can celebrate in, through, the, through the tears, through the sadness. When we can rest in the gospel of peace that brings us peace, knowing that the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word, knowing that the enemy will not win, even though sometimes his attacks hurt. That's when we don't have to run. We don't have to cower from the fight. And as sons and daughters of God, we have the opportunity then to be ambassadors of this hope, of this peace that we have found. We get to be prepared in season and out to give an answer to anybody who asks us for the hope that we have in us. As Peter said in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we can be prepared. So we can rest in that. We can stand firmly against the attack of the enemy. We don't slip and slide around when our circumstances change. Making sense? Let's keep going. So we begin with standing firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, holding everything together and the breastplate of righteousness, guarding our vital organs and our feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of evil or of the evil one. Uh, when, when Roman soldiers would walk into battle, they would carry large wooden shields and those shields were made of wood, but then they had leather that they put over the front of it, and they could often dip those shields in water so that they would not ignite when flaming arrows slammed into them. But more importantly than even having the shield is the fact that when they walked into battle, they didn't walk in as individual soldiers carrying one shield. They walked in what is called a phalanx, a, a, almost a square of soldiers walking in lockstep so that... When the enemy takes a volley of arrows at you, the, the front line would plant their shield into the ground and everybody would, would put their shield next to one another, creating a solid wall of shields. And then the, the, the rows behind them would put their shields on the top and the ones on the side would put their shield on the side. And in so doing, they were almost impervious to the attacks of the enemy. And this is the beauty of this shield wall. This is called the turtle formation. And all of them, except for the guy in the back who, you know, he's, he's toast. But all of them otherwise are totally protected. And the beauty of this is it's not just their own shield that protects them. It's the shield on either side and the people behind them. And Jesus likens the shield that can extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy to our faith. Our faith is what protects us from the attacks of the enemy, whether those attacks are lies temptations, twisted truths, having people with you actually makes you stronger and more protected because we have an enemy who is not above trying to come at your blind side. Peter likened our enemy to a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour, right? He's prowling around. Think about a lion for a moment. What kind of prey do lions go after? They go after the weak. They go after the sickly. They go after the wounded. And most importantly, they go after the ones that are isolated. In this picture, they go after the guy on the left, right? Because he's the only... It, to go after one of the, the soldiers in the middle, that's going to take way too much effort and will, put, will, will greatly expose the lion. And in the same way, our enemy loves to attack us in our blind side. We may have faith in one area, but he may recognize the place to attack this one is through their kids or through their spouse or through, you know, through pride. That's the way to get to this one. 
or through their the lust or through just feelings of comparison with somebody else. He will not come at us in our areas of strength. He will come at us in our areas of weakness. And he will do so when we are at our weakest, when we are least expecting it. I have found that the attacks typically come after a very long week of very good ministry. And it's like, yay, we did it. And then I come crashing into home on Friday night and I'm just kind of worn out. And that's when the, the, the... the whisper of, hey, you know, what about this? Just give me to this. It's no big deal. Nobody will notice. Nobody will know. It won't hurt anybody. When I'm hungry, when I'm angry, when I'm bored, when I'm isolated, and when I'm tired, I call this habits to remember the acronym. Hungry, angry, bored, isolated, tired. That's when the enemy attacks. And if I'm alone, it's very, very easy to justify giving into the things that I know are the rotten fruit that pull me off of the path and make me most open to attack, and make me feel least valuable. And Paul says, listen, you don't stand alone. We desperately need the shield of faith of one another to help us stand against the enemy's attacks. And by the way, this is exactly why we place such a strong emphasis on doing life together in life groups. Because Sunday mornings are great. It's wonderful, but this isn't where we really grow. This is not where we sharpen one another like iron on iron, iron against iron, right? It sharpens one another. This isn't where it really happens. It happens in, in you know, a smaller group of people, 10 to 12 people who are pursuing God together, who are processing the stuff that's coming up in life. When, when one of us is so overwhelmed by our circumstances that it kind of eclipses our ability to see God, we need other people who, who can remind us he's still there and he's still good. When we're tempted to believe something about ourselves, maybe we've believed it for a really long time, we need somebody else who can speak words of truth to begin to uproot the lies that the enemy has gotten to plant in our hearts. When we're tempted to give in to something, we need people there to to remind us that's not who you are, right? You don't need that. And sometimes we will be, quite often we will be protected by other people's faith. And quite often God will use our faith to help protect and hold up someone else. So if you are not currently in a life group, May I simply tell you that you are missing the best part of what this church has to offer you, and you need it. One more thing I need to say about the shield of faith before we move on. Our faith is not contingent upon the strength of our own faith, right? We can put faith in things that, at the end of the day, really don't have the ability to hold us up. I might say to you, I have faith that Jeannie and Charlie can hold me up. But if I stage dive off of this place right now, it's going to get messy in here, right? I don't, I don't place my faith in their strength. I don't place my faith in my own strength to protect myself. I place my faith in my father's strength. As, as Lee Strobel says, you know, faith is only as good as the one in whom it is invested. When we invest our faith in him, we are secure because our daddy is bigger than any schoolyard bully we encounter. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world, right? So that's why our faith comes from. That is the strength of our shield is not our own faith, but his faithfulness. And then we come to the one that we, we, we know and, and love. Oh, one more. The helmet of salvation. So not only do you take your shield of faith, but you then place the helmet of salvation on your head. What does a helmet do? It protects your brain. That's kind of important. And it also declares to everyone on the field what side you're on, whose team you belong to. If you, if you have a hard time seeing this helmet, consider a football helmet or, or a hockey helmet. It basically declares, one, your brain is protected. Two, you know who, whose team you're on. The helmet of salvation. Our salvation is in Christ. God, through his son, has saved us from the penalty of our sinfulness. He has said, this one's mine. So when the enemy begins to come and whisper half-truths into our mind, just, God doesn't love you. You're not a child of God. I mean, this is what he did with Jesus. 
right? When Jesus was tempted, what did he do? When, when Jesus, right after God had spoken words of, of Jesus' identity, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Those are the words straight out of the father's mouth to his son at the beginning of his ministry. Right on the heels of that, the enemy shows up and says, hey, if you are the son of God, if what he said about you is really true, and we're all kind of wondering if it is, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. Our enemy is not above attacking our identity. He did it with Adam and Eve. He did it with with Jesus. He will do it to you. And so we must rest in our identity as sons and daughters of God. We must protect our minds from his lies. And we must declare both to ourselves, to him, and everybody else we come into contact with. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. I protect my mind and I can rest in it. And then, in order to take the fight back, in order to be able to cut apart the lies of the enemy, we take up our shield, I'm sorry, not our shield, our sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, when we think about the Word of the God, this is, this is what comes automatically to mind. In fact, many of us call, us call this their sword for good reason. This reveals to us the heart of our Father God, and this is the arbiter of truth. If you hear something, that is in conflict with Scripture, then which one wins? Scripture. But God's Word can come to us also through people who walk with us and speak truth. God's Word can come to us also through the Holy Spirit laying things on our hearts. Again, if it's in conflict with this, this one ultimately wins. But here's the point. God's Word is a weapon that is so sharp it can cut apart the devious schemes of the enemy, the lies, the accusations, the twisted half-truths. When Satan came in and said, if you really are the son of God, then turn these bread, or turn these stones to bread and prove that you are. Jesus didn't respond by saying, no, I don't need to. He responded by quoting Deuteronomy. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the father's mouth. Block that one. Cut that lie apart. Then when the enemy decides to, to switch gears slightly and say, okay, how about this? You came here to take the whole world, to help the whole world become part of your kingdom, right? Well, that's fine. If you just bend the knee to me, I'll give it all to you. You don't even have to die on the cross. I'll give it all to you. Just, just bow to me. Once again, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. The scripture also says, Worship the Lord alone. Get behind me, Satan. Your lies, your your temptations have no power over me because I know the heart of my Father and I'm going to submit to him and him alone. But let's not forget that our enemy also knows the word and he's not above taking it out of context and twisting it to support his own ends because in that same conversation, he says, oh, okay, you want to quote scripture? I can quote scripture. Hey, you know, if you really are the son of God, if what he said about you is true, then you know we're on the temple right now. You see how far down it is? Jump. Because scripture says that the, he, God will not allow his holy one to strike even a heel against the stone, but his angels will lift him up. So jump and prove it. He was taking a passage out of context and using it to try to tempt Jesus to do something. And Jesus responds again by quoting the whole uh, message of Scripture. And so he responds again by quoting Deuteronomy. It also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When we know God's word, when we hide it in our hearts, it becomes a weapon with which we can defend ourselves against the attack of the enemy. And our job is to hide this word in our heart so that we begin to recognize the difference between our Father's voice, His Spirit's voice, and our enemy's voice. But notice that Paul calls this the sword of what? The Spirit. Thank you for those three of you who were paying attention. Uh, The sword of the Spirit. Uh, no, No shame, no guilt. I don't want to do the enemy's job for him. The sword of the Spirit reminding us that that this tool is only powerful when it's in the hands of God's Spirit because God's Spirit is what infills these words so they're more than just words on a page. They are powerful. And they are capable of cutting apart the lies of the enemy and tearing down strongholds. 
and exposing the lies that he has spoken that have begun to take root, that begin to uproot those things. It is only God's word when the Holy Spirit is behind them and working in them. The Holy Spirit is the one that when you stand before the judge, it is the Holy Spirit who reminds you of what to say. When your friend asks you why you believe what you believe, it's the Holy Spirit that brings out of the storehouse the words that have been implanted in your heart. He brings that to mind so that you can give an explanation for the hope that you have in you. It's, it is, God's word is powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And it is his job to show us how to use this. It is our job to hide God's word in our heart so that he has an arsenal to be able to pull from. So that every time we're attacked, we don't just have to go back to scripture and read it. It's already here. I have hidden your word in my heart, David said, so that I will not sin against you. I also want to just mention that there's a very distinct difference between the ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and the ways that our enemy speaks to us. Some of you, when you, and I think all of us have experienced this, when you give into a temptation, we hear these condemning words. Oh, dude, you screwed up again. You're such a loser. You, you, have, you have fallen so far. Uh, whatever it happens to be, just hammering on our insecurities. The Holy Spirit does not speak with condemning words. He speaks with convicting words. The difference is, a conviction is, hey, this isn't who you are. You're a child of God. You don't want to go that way. You don't want to give in to that. Condemnation is, you blew it again. Proud of yourself? You ought to be disgusted. Very distinct difference. And when you begin to feel condemnation, you can know beyond a certainty that that is not from your Father and that is not from the Holy Spirit. You following me? So that's the armor of God as we typically know it. And I want you to notice that each of those pieces from the belt of truth buckled around our waist and the breastplate of righteousness to guard our hearts and the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace so that we can stand against the attack of the enemy and the shield of faith that we use not only to defend ourselves but the others around us from the flaming arrows of the enemy and the helmet of salvation that guards our minds against his lies and declares to everybody who we are and the sword of the spirit that we use to cut apart his lies. All of those pieces of armor are intended to be defensive in nature. They guard us so that we can do what against the enemy's attacks? Stand. That is the whole point, is to stand against his attacks. And they are primarily defensive in nature. But there is one more piece of weaponry that we have at our disposal, that Paul talks about, that we often overlook as being a part of our spiritual arsenal, but it is probably the most, I would say it is without a doubt, the most powerful and the most offensive weapon that we have to take the fight back to the enemy. And that piece of, uh, of weaponry is prayer. Look at verse 18. Because right on the heel of talking about the spiritual armor, without any sort of like break in it, he goes right into prayer and he's going to hammer it four times in these few verses. He says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Four times he exhorts his readers to pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for one another. Pray for me that the Holy Spirit would give me the words to say when I stand before the judge to give an answer for the hope that I have in me and pray that God's will is done. If we are looking at all of these pieces of spiritual armor as something that helps us stand against the enemy's attack, almost like the, 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 the armor that a soldier would wear when they're hunkered down in a foxhole, withstanding the enemy's attack so that they don't give up more ground to the enemy, then prayer is like the field phone that we use to call in airstrikes. That, the prayer links us to the real big guns of God, to the power, because it's God's power, not our power. It is our Father God who will overcome the enemy. And when we recognize a stronghold, God, I'm recognizing in my marriage right now 
the distance between me and my sweetie. I need your help right there. God, I'm recognizing right now that I have been embittering my children and frustrating them. I've been so just picking apart at them. And I just pray that you would, you would undo some of the damage and give me wisdom and how to respond and protect me from just being overly angry. God, I'm recognizing that I'm beginning to get jealous of my coworker because she got the, the raise and I didn't. God, I'm recognizing that I'm beginning to be angry at my neighbors because all they do is needle and pick at everything and, and, and complain to the city about everything. And my heart is growing hardened towards them. Would you do what only you can do? And then God brings his power to bear on it. And may I tell you with all humility that there is power in prayer. There is power to tear down strongholds. And there is power to do things that we cannot do. Let me give you just two examples. About a year ago, my buddy Bill Nelson back there um, had a surgery in his side. And the doctor said, we're going to allow this to close on its own. Six months later, that hole was still as big as when he had had his surgery. It had not closed at all. And the doctors were going, we're not sure what we're going to do here, but uh, we got to do something. We as a church had an opportunity to pray. We laid hands on him and we prayed for him about four months ago. The very next day, Bill went to his doctor again. And the hole was half as big as it had been the day before. And the doctor goes, what? What's going on? Like something changed. And Bill said, well, I had my church pray over me. And his doctor said, wow, that, 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 that's a church of faith. Those were his words to Bill. God can heal things that doctors cannot. But it's not just physical healing that prayer can do. It's also spiritual strongholds that can be torn down. And so I'm going to share a story that I've shared before, but it's probably one of the most powerful examples of how prayer can undermine the strongholds that the enemy gets in people's lives and expose the lies for what they are. There was a, I used to lead a life group at another church when I was younger and I was, Kathy and I were just dating at the time. And I was leading a life group, and there was this girl in it. We'll call her Karen, although that is not her name, and none of you know her. But this girl was a single mother whose husband had, had left some deep wounds on her heart. And so she had begun to believe thing, things about herself. She began to believe that she was not worthy, that she was not lovable, that she was damaged goods. And, and she responded to that without knowing it by kind of glomming on to the stable guys in our group and kind of cuddling up next to us. And when you gave her a hug, she would, she would linger extra long and she would go for a second hug and a third hug because she was asking for something. Am I enough? Can you, can you just tell me I'm okay? Well, the girls in the group tended to be a little more discerning than the guys and, and their, their red flags went up, right? They began to become leery of this girl. And, and my girl, my wife in particular, began to feel like, she was a wolf in sheep's clothing looking to make a meal out of her man. So needless to say, she began to distance herself from Karen. And she began to become very uncomfortable around her. But one of the things I love about my girl is that she doesn't just write people off and accept uh, those kind of thoughts. And so every, she, she decided that every time she started to feel frustrated or angry towards Karen, she would use that as a prompting to pray for her. And at first, those prayers were something like, God, open her eyes to what she's doing and protect the men in our group from her. And then after several weeks of praying that, um, God began to reveal to Kathy what was underneath Karen's responses. She began to recognize, man, my sister's wounded. She's really hurting and she is looking to the men in our group to give her something that she doesn't feel she deserves. And my, my wife's heart broke for this girl. So much so that her prayers began to change. God, she's wounded and she doesn't even realize it. I pray that you would minister to her heart. In fact, would you bring somebody in to Karen's life that can walk with her and help her to recognize the depth of her pain so she can begin to heal so that she doesn't look to the people around her to tell her she's okay. 
And of course, God responds, I have, I brought you. And so Kathy's prayers began to change yet again to, okay, if you want me to be that person, which I, uh, then would you please set up the timing and would you give me the opportunity? Would you set up a divine appointment and would you give me the words to say to Karen? Not more than two weeks later, uh, we, we showed up to Life Group early and Karen was there and she said, she came up to Kathy specifically and said, hey, Kat, can I talk to you? So they went outside in the backyard and Karen began to pour out her heart about this very issue. She said, I don't understand it, but, but women in my life, not just in this group, but just pretty much in every situation, women tend to hold me at arm's length. Is there something wrong with me? What's going on? I don't understand it. And what I love is that God had, through prayer, had changed my wife's heart so much towards this woman that she didn't use it as an excuse to bite her head off and rub her nose in it. Instead, she was able to come alongside this hurting sister and begin to lovingly help her to recognize where the, the pain was coming from and what, how she was trying to uh, deal with that pain by, by getting something from other people in a way that, that, that was not respectful of boundaries. And he, deep healing began to happen so much so that today, to this day we call uh, Karen a very close family friend. And she's the, the strongholds, the lies that the enemy had been able to plant in her mind simply by whispering lies that she then accepted in her woundedness and allowed to take root. Those got uprooted and deep healing happened. Is there power in prayer? You better believe it. Power to do what man cannot do, God can do to tear down strongholds. So if you want to take the fight back to the enemy, then get on your knees. You take this war to the floor, then things really start to happen. Because he is greater than any stronghold we encounter. And when you recognize it, the most offensive weapon you have in this battle is war. Because our hope is that one day, God will finish what he started in a manger some 2,000 years ago. And there will be no more brokenness. There will be no more lies. And our enemy will be overthrown once and for all. We don't need to fear him. We don't need to fixate on him. But we need to stand against his attacks. And we don't use the weapons of this world. We use spiritual weapons. We buckle that belt of truth around our waist to protect us from the lies and half-truths of the enemy and to protect us from his low blows. And we, we, Father God, we, we pray that you would help us to put on the chest plate, the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus, it's righteousness that comes from you so that our hearts will be defended against his accusations. And we, we stand firmly in, in the feet shod with the gospel of peace that helps us stand in our relationship with you and helps us to be ambassadors of this hope that we have found. And we take up our shield of faith with which we and those around us can protect all of us from the attacks of the enemy any which way he tries to come. We put on our, our helmet of salvation to protect our minds from his lies that we might rest in our identity as your children. We use the sword of the spirit which is your word to cut apart his lies. And finally, Father, we know that we can come to you in any moment, in any situation, and, and pour our heart out and you hear it. And there is power in prayer to decimate the strongholds of the enemy. So we don't need to fear him. We pray, Father, today that you would give us the strength to stand against his attacks. May your kingdom come. May you help yourself to our lives to advance your purposes. And I pray that you would give us the eyes to recognize the attack of our enemy so that when we resist him, he does flee from us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey, we're going to go ahead and respond to what we've heard by just thanking God for his faithfulness to us. And in a few moments, the, uh, the ushers will come to take an offering. If you have something that you're recognizing, you just want us to join you in praying with, Maybe it's saying, hey, I need community around me. I'm standing right now like a person with a shield, but I feel totally alone, and I need community. Would you just indicate that on your connection card? Because Pastor Jeff 
will endeavor to get you plugged into a group before the end of the year so that you can start out next year in a life group. Or maybe it's just something you want us to help carry with you, something you want us to join. We pray over these things throughout the week. Just go ahead and fill that out. But now let's, let's worship our God together. not feel right to get this close to the end of Ephesians and not read it all, right? So let me just close. Let me just close with the final words of Paul. Um, he, he, he says, I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that reminds me that th- he is writing um, to people. He knows, he says, Tychus, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you may know how I'm doing and what I'm doing. I'm sending this to you for that very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. And now here is our blessing from Paul across the millennia. He says, peace to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Father, we thank you for loving us undyingly, unswervingly. We thank you for the peace that we have in you. And we pray that you would use us as agents of peace, that our lives would reflect the hope that we have found in you. Go with us, we pray, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.